I would like us to uh, turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. You're going to get uh, a sermon today that uh, is what I would call a very methodical sermon. By that I mean it is full of Methodist doctrine and Methodist interpretation of life. And there's a reason for that, because fundamentally my theology is a Methodist theology um, with a little bit of Holy Spirit added in here and there. But um, I believe deeply in the things that I'll be sharing with you today. And I'm going to share a little bit about the stages of Christian life so that we have an understanding, uh, a little bit more um, concrete understanding of what, uh, what we believe occurs during the Christian life. And uh, there are a lot of different viewpoints about that, by the way. But um, I'm wanting to uh, just focus a little bit on some of the understanding that John and Charles Wesley brought uh, to the Christian world. And also, uh, it's interesting that their theology was very similar to the Evangelical Brethren movement as well. They were very closely aligned in terms of, separate in terms of era and so on, but very closely aligned in their understanding of the Christian life. So before we get to that, you look as if having had that little bit of an introduction, you'd need me to pray that you'd have strength to get through the sermon. So let's see if we can do that. Let's pray. Father, as we come to hear your word proclaimed, we are mindful, Lord, of the need to pray, not just for this moment, but to pray on a broader setting. And so we would, Lord, just remember the people in the world who have gone through great tragedy in recent times. We think of some of the Caribbean islands. We think of some of the places uh, in the U.S., but we think also of many places in Asia where there has been a disaster of one type or another. We pray, Father, that the countries that can help will help as they should, those regions. We pray, Father, that there would be just a positive response to the famine that is being experienced in parts of Africa. We would pray, Lord, that water and rice and flour and food would get to where it needs to get. From those countries that, have, uh, that throw out probably more than is needed in the countries that have been devastated. We ask, Father, for a release of greater compassion in the hearts of men and women worldwide for those who are suffering. We would also pray, Father, for a peaceful resolution to the tension between North Korea and the rest of the world. We would pray, Father, for <coughs> wisdom to come to the leaders of the world in the way in which they deal with one another, and particularly with that country. Father, it doesn't have to be that war is inevitable. And we pray, Lord, that throughout the world, the prayers of your people would go forth in such a way that, Lord, your hand moves and changes the course of what seems likely to happen. 
We pray, Lord, for a tempering of lips and the words that they usher or that they tweet. We ask, Father, for a better and a wiser and a softer counsel to come to the countries that are involved. And we would pray, Father, that there would be uh, some degree of relationship restored and reestablished. We would pray, Father, for the removal of people who shouldn't be in power. And we would ask for the sake of the people and the nations involved that, Lord, there would be peace as well as good character. We also pray, Father, again for our own nation on a holiday weekend with grand finals and all those sorts of things. Father, we would pray that in the space that that day off, extra day off gives, that, Father, that would be used wisely, particularly uh, by people who <coughs> um, <coughs> are normally very hurried and busy in life. May we reevaluate how we live. And, Father, I would pray that we would return to a simpler lifestyle than what's practiced in today's world. Help us to see and to uh, appreciate and value the simple things of life. The time spent with others. The help that we can give one another. Not just in practical ways, but also just in a smile or a word of encouragement. And we pray, Lord, that we might win people to Christ because of the way that we love them in a godly and an honouring way. And we would ask for your help in that regard, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to read uh, just a section out of Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, reading from verse 42. It's one of the most difficult sections uh, to interpret and understand in the Scriptures, which is why I'm going to give you a test at the end of the sermon, just to make sure you've been listening. <laughs> Assuming that what I say is helpful. Jesus has been with his disciples. Um, they've been walking. He's uh, healed a boy who had an unclean spirit. Uh, he foretells his death and resurrection. And then as they're walking along the road coming to Capernaum, his disciples, in the midst of having seen all this miraculous stuff and hearing that Jesus is going to uh, uh, have to go to uh, his death, <clears throat> um, the disciples decide that they do what most people do, what human nature does. They argue amongst themselves, particularly Peter, James and John, about who will be the greatest. And isn't that like human nature? And then at the end of that section, uh, they say, uh, John says to Jesus, we saw someone else casting out demons in your name, but they're not with us. Tell them to stop it. And Jesus says, well, hang on. If they're doing it in my name and it's working, something's right. Don't assume that they're against us. And then Jesus goes on and he talks about uh, inner discipline in our lives. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone 
were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Turn to someone and say, I haven't heard hell mentioned so much in a, in a church service for a long time. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And my text today is that last phrase. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And the title of the sermon is a simple one, Tough and tender. I was playing tennis on Friday and uh, a guy that I was playing tennis with is just back from six weeks doing the European Rhine River cruises and stuff like that. And he was saying to he wasn't overly, overly impressed with the one that he was on. And he was talking about um, having a, a meal uh, and ordering a steak. And he ordered it medium to well done. And when it came, and another guy at his table ordered the same thing, when it came, it was still dripping with blood. And so he said to the other guy, I've had enough of this. I'm going to send mine back. Do you want me to organize the same for yourself? And the other guy said, yes, absolutely. So they sent back these extremely rare, not even rare to, me, uh, to medium, rare uh, stakes back to be fixed they were still mooing as they went back and uh, apparently and not long later back came the stakes as tough as leather boots and not particularly palatable and you know sometimes I think in our lives we get the order of tough and tender wrong We tend to be tough on everyone else and tender on ourselves. But in fact, Jesus is saying, remembering that they've just been arguing about who's going to be the greatest, and he's talking about self-discipline, you know, cutting off your hand or your foot to make sure that you're acceptable before God um, and don't end up in hell. He's making this comment. He's saying, be tough on yourself and tender towards others. Now, I know in our society with all our psychological analysis and all the introverted, um, insecure people that exist in the world, not mentioning anyone here, of course, I know that nowadays we've got to be gentle and stroke people all the time and just in case they might be offended. And yet the reality is Jesus never did that. He was truthful and honest in his response to people. And he expected people, particularly his followers, of whom I'm assuming most of us are, he assumed that we would know that in our life 
we grow and we strengthen by correction, by pruning, not just by being told that we're okay. This verse comes at the end, as I said earlier, of a very difficult section. And it comes out of the disciples arguing as to who's going to be the greatest. And in fact, that last section, 42 to 50, verse 42 to 50 verses, is a compilation of short, pithy sayings. Interesting word, pithy. You should look it up in the dictionary. Short, pithy sayings that Jesus taught his followers during the time he was with them. Turn to someone and say, that was a pithy sentence. Have salt in yourselves is used in this case as focusing on the grace of Christian character. Have character that's Christ-like in yourself. And we can sum up today's verse, I think, by saying that Jesus asks his followers to be tough on themselves and tender with others. But before we focus on that at the end of the sermon, I want to just first of all refresh our minds of the nature of grace and how it works in the Christian life. And this is the part that I believe uh, is a very Methodist type of doctrine. Like everyone who's a Christian, they understand or they should understand that grace pervades everything about our understanding of Christian faith and life. And Wesley, the founder of Methodism, shared with many other Christians a belief in grace, in justification, in other words, being made right with God, how that comes about, assurance, the assurance that we're children of God and loved by Him, and sanctification, the assurance that God is working in our lives to produce a better product, healing up what needs to be healed, Releasing and empowering what needs to be released and empowered. You'll remember, some of you have been around long enough, that I used to talk a lot about being a work in progress. That is a fundamental theological statement. Someone says to you, well, what do you believe? You say, one of the things I believe is I'm a work in progress. I'm not the finished product, but I'm along the track. And I, by the time I get there, I'm going to be a lot better than I am today because God is continually working in my life to bring about a sense of holiness and happiness. That's what Wesley believed was one of the main aims of God when he calls us into relationship with him. He wants to do two things in our lives. He wants to make us holy. In other words, set aside in our lives for the things of God not just for ourselves. And he wants us to be happy. What's the point of being set aside for God if you're miserable? And you consider yourself, you're one of the frozen chosen. I don't see the point in that. And Wesley combined in his understanding of what grace was in a powerful manner uh, a number of emphases uh, that described what it meant in the context of grace to live the Christian life. He acknowledged that while the grace of God can't be divided 
it does precede salvation. God is already at work in our lives before we become Christians. And he used a term for that. He called it provenient grace. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But he also talked about the fact that once provenient grace does its work and you come into relationship with Christ, then justifying grace does its job. And you actually are converted, to use that term. And we'll talk about that too. And grace is brought to fruition in sanctifying grace, the ongoing work of God in our lives to set us aside to be holy and happy. Wesley understood grace as God's active presence in our lives. God's active presence in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And this presence is not, uh, of grace is not dependent on human actions or human response. You don't get it because you've done something right. It's entirely a gift, was his understanding. A gift that is always available. And this is where he differed from Calvinists. It's always available but it can be refused. That was the fundamental difference between Wesley and a number of Calvin's followers when it came to the concept of election and predestination, determining who would or who wouldn't, God determining who would or who wouldn't be saved, or knowing who would be saved. And Wesley argued that the grace of God, as wonderful as it is, can be resisted. And denied. It can be refused. Are you with me so far? You're following this, I hope. I'm trying to put it in a way that we can identify with. So let's talk about God's provenient grace. What does that do? Because if you're someone who has an unbelieving husband or wife or friend or family member... This is how you need to pray. You need to pray that provenient grace will do its work in their lives. Remembering that it's a gift. God's provenient grace operates like this. It stirs up within us a desire to know God. And it empowers us to respond to God's invitation to be in relationship with Him. The grace of God in proveniently enables us to discern the difference between good and evil and makes it possible for us to choose good. So if you want to pray for someone's salvation, ask that they will begin to see the difference between good and evil and that they'll begin to see that they're not necessarily good themselves that they'll begin to see the operation of sin in their lives. God's provenient grace takes the initiative in relating to humanity. And this is one of the distinctions between Christian faith and every other sort of so-called faith, which I believe are all false. 
God takes the initiative in relating to humanity. We don't have to beg and plead for God's love and grace. God actively seeks us. See, he takes the initiative. You can be as holy as you like. You can be as perfect as you like. But if God doesn't take the initiative, that makes no difference. You see, he's the one who comes to us. You know, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, he said, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And then in his letter to the Roman Christians, Paul wrote, But God proves his love for us in this in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know God loves you? Because you feel his love? No. Although that can be. We know that God loves us because Christ died for us. That's the foundation upon which we know we're loved. The experiential dimension of that comes when the Holy Spirit enables us to be able to say, Abba, Father. But the foundation is that Christ came. John 3.16 says it very clearly. For God so loved the world. How do you know God loves your worst enemy? Because of that. And those two verses and a number of others demonstrate the justifying grace of God. So we've moved from becoming aware of good and evil and sin to becoming aware that we need to be saved ourselves to recognizing that, that God sent Christ in order for that to be possible. For the power of sin to be forgiven and removed from not only our lives but the life of the world. According to Wesley... Those verses point to reconciliation, to pardon, and to restoration. And through the work of God in Christ, our sins are forgiven and our relationship with God is restored. In fact, according to Wesley, the image of God, which was breathed into us, and sorry, his image that we were created in according to Genesis, that image which has been distorted by sin is actually renewed within us through Christ's death. When we are converted, that image of God is restored and we begin to know again relationship with him. Again, this dimension of God's grace we need to remember is a gift. God's grace alone brings us into relationship with God. There aren't any hoops which we have to jump through in order to please God and to be loved by God. God has acted in Jesus Christ. We need only to respond in faith. That's it. That's simple. It's that simple. We just need to trust Him. And to believe that he died for us. Have you ever paused and thought of Christ on the cross? 
and see him in all his agony look at you personally and say, I did this for you. So this process that grace brings of bringing us into this place of justification and new birth, that's what we often call conversion in church circles. Such a change, and listen to this, particularly if you're someone who has high intellect, or you think you have, <laughs> you're all putting your hands up. If you think that the cognitive faculty of your life is a dominating thing or a strong thing and you're not a touchy-feely person all that much, I'm not going to get a show to have hands, but I'm sure there are some of you here in that regard. If you're like that, understand this, that this transformation that comes this realization that, yes, you do believe, such a change in your inner understanding of who you are can be really sudden and dramatic. And most people love to, particularly ministers, they like to get someone to come and give a testimony that is extremely dramatic. But conversion can also be gradual. And cumulative, where you just suddenly realize after years, you know, that's what I believe. That is true. Yes, I am a Christian because I believe in Christ Himself. I believe the written word of God. And conversion can be dramatic, but it can also just be a gradual, cumulative thing. Where you get to that place and you say, yes, this, this is where I'm camping. This is what is the foundation of my life. Both evidence the work of grace. And often for people who struggle uh, with their minds and their thoughts, the issue often with intellect is, is simply that it's taking a little bit of time. It's a slightly different pattern than that dramatic thing. I remember uh, the story of a man who was baptized in the Spirit after many, many years of wanting to be, and he started speaking in tongues. And he only said two syllables. But he knew he'd been filled with the Spirit and given the gift of tongues. But he was so frustrated, he only had two syllables. And he asked God, he said, why did you give me this gift and only give me two syllables? So he was operating in faith. He didn't say, did I get the gift or not? He knew that he had. Why did you only give me two syllables? Now God, being very concerned for him, just wanting to stroke him gently, not tell him the truth. Said to him, because of your great intellect, I need to keep you humble. And this is a way of doing it. Whoa. But that's not fair. 
is what that little child in us sometimes says, isn't it? But in the eyes of God, it was the best thing for that man. So conversion marks a new beginning, but Wesley saw that it was a part of an ongoing process. Christian experience is about personal transformation, and it always expresses itself. Christian experience, if it's genuine, will always express itself as faith working in love. So the things that you do, the service you provide in your Christian church, your community, the times you reach out to other people, which is not necessarily going to be every day, but when you do, you reach out in the love of God. That's faith being exercised. The work of grace finding expression in our life. We need to understand that salvation is not static. It's not a one-time event in our lives. Rather, it's the ongoing experience of God's gracious presence transforming us into the person that he wants us to be, that he intends for us to be, improving the quality of our lives in terms of how we view life. You can be 60 or 70 or 80 and finally have a revelation that you're forgiven or that you can forgive yourself. But that transformation, that ongoing work happens through what Wesley called God's sanctifying grace. It's grace working in sanctifying us, growing us and maturing us in our, in our ability to live as Jesus lived. Are you living more like the Lord now than you were a year ago? If you're not, you need to ask yourself, why not? Need to evaluate that. And to look, not just the outward, I'm talking about the inward attitudes, the inward thoughts that we have, the inward understanding that we have. Is your biblical knowledge greater and more personal this year than it was last year? Important things. Is your prayer life growing or in active use? And see, Wesley Believe that God's sanctifying grace operated in these ways. As we pray, as we study the scriptures, as we fast, as we worship, and as we share in fellowship with other Christians, we deepen our knowledge of and love for God. That's how we deepen our personal knowledge of and love for God. In those ways. They're the spiritual disciplines if you like. But he also believed. That as we respond with compassion. To human need. And as we work for justice. In our communities. That we strengthen our capacity. To love our neighbor. And God is all about. Loving him. And loving one another. And we express our faith. 
and the work of grace in our lives, not just with our devotion to God, but with our ability to love one another. What did Jesus say in our text for today? Have salt in yourselves, have Christian godly character, and have peace with one another. The vertical and the horizontal, which is why the image of the cross is always so fantastic. There's a vertical and a horizontal dimension. And when you think of Jesus with his arms outstretched, what does that say on the cross? It says something to the world. It's a prophetic action to the world. It's a declaration to you and I that our relationship with God cannot be divorced from our relationship with others, particularly those of faith. I was reading during the week that as persecution increases, and this was not a modern book, this was a commentary on this particular passage. But it was saying that as persecution increases, all the differences between the Christian denominations will become irrelevant. And you'll find out those who genuinely are following Christ in their lives. Our inner thoughts and motives, as well as our outer actions and behavior, are meant as God's sanctifying grace works to align with God's will. And they are testimony of our union with God. How do you know that you're a Christian? By the way in which you love one another. Remember, have sold in yourself and peace with each other. What had they been talking about? Who was going to be the greatest? Which automatically is going to get an argument, isn't it? If you think about human nature, we're to press on with God's help in the path of sanctification, is what Wesley would say. Even our sin, with its destructive consequences for all of creation, and that we still wrestle with, I haven't said any of you are perfect, or me. In case you're wondering, you weren't wondering about that, you know that I'm not. <laughs> Even our sin with its destructive consequences for all creation does not alter God's intention for us. Even though we fail, it doesn't alter God's intention for us, which is holiness and happiness of heart. Nor does it diminish our accountability for the way that we live. See, we're going to be accountable for the way we live. God's grace in human activity, working together. Let me say that again. God's grace and human activity, working together in the relationship of faith and good works. God's grace calls forth human response and discipline. 
And faith is the only response that is essential for salvation. And it will evidence itself always in good works. Someone who genuinely meets Christ and is restored in relationship with God will begin to produce good works, both inwardly and outwardly. Both faith and good works belong with an all-encompassing theology of grace because they stem from God's gracious love which is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So God's grace will work in our lives when we respond to produce good works. Good works don't get us into relationship with God, but the expression of good works is an expression that we are of the fact that we have experienced the grace of God in our lives and have come into relationship with Him. Let me put it another way. Scriptural holiness entails more than personal piety. Love of God is always linked with love of neighbor, a passion for justice, and renewal in the life of the world. Think back into our service when I prayed just before this sermon started. I prayed not just for ourselves, but I prayed for the world in specific ways. That's an evident, that's evidence of the love of God operating in our lives because we want to see the best for the world. We want to see the best for North Korean, Korea. We want to see the best for every country. We want to see the world as God intended it to be. Why? Because it couldn't be any better than that. And because our love is such that we know that Christ died, that that might become a reality. So where does that leave us? After our opening verse, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, you've heard a lot about grace. But you've heard a lot about the Christian life and how at least Wesley had an understanding of how it functioned. I believe what I've said today in quoting Wesley. I believe that the evidence of God's grace operating in our lives comes out in the way we love one another and the good works that we do to build up our personal piety but also to express the love of God to others in the world. So where does it leave us? Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 to 27, says that we have responsibility for the state of our lives before God. And the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1, which I'd like you to just turn to if you have a Bible. In 2 Peter 1, basically says that uh, from verse 3, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. But then he goes on, this is one of my favorite, it's probably my second favorite New Testament passage. Then he goes on and he says, but we also have the responsibility to make every effort 
to ensure that we continue to be fruitful and effective in our lives before God and others. For example, it says, His divine power has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And then it goes on. And then in verse 5, For this very reason, because God's given us everything that we need, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. That's the ability to actually evaluate our lives before God, to actually understand what we need to change, to actually be able to discern the will of God for a situation or a person or a circumstance that we're in. <clears throat> And then to act in a way that's in accordance with the will of God. Self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Can you see there is faith being worked out in love in the way in which we relate to each other in that passage. And then it goes on, it says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, in other words, it's not static, it's not a one-time thing, there is this ongoing growth and maturing in our lives that never ends, by the way. My dad's 90 and I can see a few things that he needs to grow in still. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And here's the clincher for me about predestination and so on. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What a promise. That we can have stability. We can have a sense of happiness and holiness. We can have a sense of the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts and through us to others into their hearts. What a wonderful thing to be restored in that image. And what a wonderful thing to be able to have head knowledge and apply it in our lives. To be able to take our thought process, to be able to analyze what options we have and to know what is the will of God in those options. According to his word, but also according to his spirit. Functioning in our lives. So as you leave today. Two things. One of them is. Have salt. Have Christian character. In yourself. Evaluate. How you are relating to God and to others. Have and have peace 
with others. If there are people that you need to humble yourself before, no matter who, sort it out. Doesn't matter if they rub your face in the ground. Doesn't matter if they laugh at you. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you make sure that to the best of your ability, you forgive, you apologize, and you restore relationships wherever you can. See, that's self-control. But I don't want to do that. They've done this, and I, they've hurt me. Yes, I understand all that. I think one of the toughest jobs is to be a pastor because you have to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. You have to practice it and still come back for more and love. So I know what it's like to be hurt. But at the same time, I also know the joy of putting things right. Even if people don't want to, you can put it right within yourself and act on that basis. That's one thing. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. But the other thing is this. If you're one of those people for whom the conversion process is slow and you worry about that, I'm saying to you today, do not worry. Continue to respond to the grace of God operating in your life and the love of God operating in your life. Look for ways to serve. Look for the scriptures. Look for times of prayer. Look for people who will influence you in a loving and godly way and will bless your life. Look for those qualities that you know in your head but you don't always feel in your heart. You haven't had the warm, fuzzy feeling. It doesn't matter. John Wesley didn't have it for years. He was an ordained minister and he hadn't got it. He kept preaching until he did. And I would say to you, don't worry about that. Just allow the God of grace to continue to do its work in your life. And there will be the moment, the light bulb moment, suddenly when in your mind you'll say, you know, I really believe that. I haven't had any experiential dynamic that's happening other than just quietly in myself. I know. That's what I believe. That's who I want to follow, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of his Holy Spirit. And I'm yielding my life to that, to that person again, to the Savior of the world. Now, here's the thing. If that's you, I want you to stand up and come forward now. I want to pray with you. If that's how you are and you struggle with that, you feel that you're missing something, I'm wanting to say to you, stand up and come forward now. Just let me pray with you. That God would reveal more of himself to you, not just in your mind, but in your whole being. So you've got 10 seconds. If you want to do that. There's one. Yep, that's an honest person. Another honest. We've got two honest people. Three. That's good. That's four. That's good. 
five, that's good. We've got six, we've got seven. So I had a word of knowledge about this. I knew there would be a number of you that would be touched by it. Would you all stand? Father, I want to thank you for these people. I want to thank you for everyone here. Haven't had one person leave, Father. That grace of God, thank you. But Father, for these folk who stand here this morning, I just want to thank you for them. Lord, I just want to come and just bless them with a hug. Bless you. God bless you. Someone come and just... A man, just come here for a moment, please. Thanks, someone. Yep, just here. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God loves you. God bless you. God loves you as you are. And praise God, he's not going to leave you as you are. (laughs) God bless you. For being on the right road. You know, in our passage today, there are a lot. Jesus talked about, oh, not going to hell. And I bless you that God loves you and has you on the right road. Whoa. God bless you. God loves you, Dylan. Don't know why, but he does. I do know why. It's his nature. (laughs) God bless you. You are on the right road. God bless you, Nikki. In the midst of everything, God loves you. You are on the right road. Whoa! See, we don't always understand. We like to think we will. But understanding is not knowledge. And it's not brain capacity. Understanding is just knowing God is with you. And sometimes it's only the scriptures that tell you that. In the midst of great pain, most people go to the scriptures and they open them and they find suddenly it's speaking to them. Why they went to that passage or that page, they don't know. But they are listening to God in what they read. Totally valid. Father, as we depart this morning, I pray that all of us would know your loving kindness in greater measure. I pray particularly for those standing at the front, that Lord, these seven, interesting number, that these seven would today know your love more deeply. They would know your your grace more powerfully at whatever stage of life they're at in their walk with you. Would you mature them more? Would you, Lord, help them more? Would you enable them to trust you more? I bless you with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May his peace rest upon you today and always. Amen.